0: Okay, good morning everybody and welcome to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. We are seeing Brent crude oil consolidate its position uh, well above $90 now, above $92 on Brent this morning. Even WTI is is challenging to break through 90. Uh, The move that we saw last week during the APEC uh, uh, events in Singapore and the announcement by Saudi Arabia to extend its unilateral 1 million barrel a day cut through to the end of the year has really given the velocity uh, that this uh, market was looking for to sort of make that uh, ascendant sort of challenge to $100 a barrel. Let's welcome this morning, um, our uh, three speakers kick off with Andrew Critchlow. Video is off, is that what you're telling me? I'm getting messages that my video is off. Okay, well, let's see if my video is off. It is off. Why can't it go on? There it's on and now it's off. There it is. Jesus Christ. You know you couldn't do it without this handsome face. But uh, well, we'll go to one other more handsome, fitter face. Uh, Andrew Critchlow, Head of News, EMEA, S&P Global Commodity Insights. Andy, welcome back. I uh, hope you had a good summer. Yeah, is there anything... Is there anything that you can see that stops this momentum? We're now 30% up since the low in June, uh, 30% over three months. Anything to stop this continuing and and sort of going towards that $100? Your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it's really difficult to see anything kind of dampening the, the uh, bullish sort of trend, which is not just pushing uh, uh, flat prices accrued at the moment, but it's also very much evident in products. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at very closely Uh, into this quarter is uh, demand for diesel in Europe. Of course, this is gonna be the first winter where you haven't had that uh, flow of Russian diesel in significant volumes coming into Europe. And so there is already a bit of a scramble uh, in the European market to get products. So last month, for example, uh, shipments into Europe from the Middle East climbed to 420,000 barrels a day. According to SP Global Commodities at Sea, and that's up from three hundred fifty-three thousand barrels a day. So, when you look at that and how it translates to price, um, the um, low-sulfur gas oil ICE futures contract, assessed by Platts, that's now um, trading at its highest uh, since uh, January. So, you know, there's a couple of things behind that one. You know, there's refinery maintenance, which is now starting to kick in, um, um, but also. Um, it's just that lack of product that traditionally has come from Russia, and, and someone's got to fill the gap. So you've got this dynamic now where uh, uh, diesel, for example, is actually acting to pull up flat price of crude, and I think that that dynamic is going to pick up. And you 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 add that to everything we've seen now from OPEC restraining uh, uh, production exports. You add that to you know still this trend of, of you know there is a little bit of demand still coming out. From post-COVID, more air travel, just more economic activity. Yes, question marks over China. Yes, question marks over growth and inflation. But actually, it's a rising tide lifting all ships at the moment. So, um, yeah, very bullish signals pushing towards that $100 a barrel sort of uh, key market, which a lot of the Middle East producers are looking for.
0: Ed Bell, head of market economics at Emirates MBD. Of course, Ed, this is uh, in the face of uh, Fed uh, rate hikes, 500 basis points over the last year, uh, and across Europe uh, and and the British, the UK, Central Bank as well, uh, have all been trying to challenge the inflation. Is that cycle over? Could that still be uh, uh, the Fed in particular in the fourth quarter this year? going one more hike, and then possibly putting a cap on this rally. Your thoughts? Well, our view right now is
2: that the Fed is done, that their, their last hike was, or the, the one that they had in July, was the last hike they needed to do, and that they will hold rates now for an extended period until the end of the first half of next year. I think you know, we might see some ticks higher in the headline CPI from the US, which is actually due at later date, A lot of that might be driven by the kind of energy price inflation that we're seeing, as as Andy's laid out about the the moves we've seen in gasoline prices or or, or product prices. I think the Fed is really going to try and look through those dynamics, though, and really focus on sort of the core core inflation pressures in the U.S. Those have been on a disinflationary trend. I think they want to see them entrenched a little bit more. But I don't think that they're going to say that they need to tighten policy even further because it's already in quite a restrictive mode. And if they hold policy unchanged uh, from where it's at now until midway through uh, 2024, then policy rates in real terms are going to be at very restrictive levels, above, well above what the Fed classifies as sort of the neutral rate of interest. There could be a little bit more room, though, for the uh, European Central Bank and the Bank of England to have to hike rates. We had um, jobs numbers out from the UK yesterday, which, depending how you're looking at it, could have been good, could have been bad. From the point of view of the Bank of England, you have wage growth of more than 8% year on year in the UK, and that's passing through. Into higher services inflation. Um, let, in
0: the, let me just challenge you a bit, uh, Ed. I mean, how can yeah. you call a hold at this point when the target uh, inflation rate is still double the the sort of mandated uh, objective of the Fed? Uh, in the but it is going down. It is decelerating, right? So, and you have well, the deceleration the, has stopped, the, if not slowed at least. I mean, the, the idea the that deceleration
2: that uh, we've had in inflation so far. We've only just gotten into real positive
0: rates going forward. If
2: that deceleration and in inflation continues, you're going to have a very restrictive environment, even if you don't need to move up anymore, Which
0: in itself then could be the cap on hundred dollar oil, right? If you don't raise rates, it means that the, 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 the 500 basis points is working and the economy is slowing. And then you would expect prices not to continue rising. Could those two things coexist?
2: Yeah, I mean, I
0: think the the relationship
2: between rates, the dollar and commodities, they're very... The, the, I, I think it's hard to put that into a, a, a tried and tested economic model and say that those things always work all the time. Sometimes they work in tandem, sometimes you can have the opposite scenario where, which we're in right now, if you look at August or you look at the summer, you had the dollar soaring. You had oil prices soaring. That's not supposed to happen, right? They're supposed to go in the opposite direction. So you can certainly have both of those dynamics coinciding. And I think we could get into a period where, yes, you do see the impact of the tightening that has been taken so far, feeding through all to consumers, onto businesses in the U.S. that starts to chew away. At some of the marginal demand growth in the US for next year, more more likely than the end, end of 23. And that perhaps puts a bit of a dampener on oil prices, maybe not that they squash them, but it just makes it that much harder to go higher and higher.
0: Let's go to Mark House and head of Asia for Wellington's and Analytics. Mark, of course, LNG and gas demand in, in Asia and particularly China is a big bellwether to the economic health of the region and hence its energy demand uh, appetite. China's Sinopec has just issued a tender seeking 25 cargoes of LNG over the next year. Is it all bumper go in China on gas demand? And so the economic health there, one should be bullish on?
3: Well, certainly, Sean, you mentioned APEC a minute ago. And, of course, we also had the Gas Tech uh, Conference here in Singapore uh, last week, where we actually got almost 50,000 attendees at that event, which obviously is a record and it's the biggest gas tech I've ever seen. And to answer your question, the mood in Asia here is is very much bullish in terms of LNG demand, gas demand. Uh, You mentioned China in particular, Chinese Economic growth is, you know, some people are saying it's a bit disappointing, but it's still running at almost six and a half percent GDP growth. And in addition to that, if you actually look at how much incremental lng china has brought in in the first half of this year it was up seven percent year on year and that's obviously in addition to increasing uh, their domestic production but also their piped imports as well and we can just see how fragile particularly this asia pacific market is because we're still only buying and procuring cargoes for a november which isn't obviously the, the peak winter demand season, but LNG prices here are already uh, spot prices already over $13 per MMBTU and over $11 per MMBTU in in Europe, which is particularly high for this time of year. And we just saw when an event happens or even the threat of an event, we obviously had strikes in Australia from the Chevron plants, Gorgon and Wheatstone that started on Friday, but haven't really affected LNG production yet. However, prices do just jump up uh, quite aggressively on the back of that news so the market here is is still pretty supply constrained and quite frankly pretty fragile uh going forward so into not the demand
0: world. led it's more supply constrained a bit like oil
3: well in the case of china it is very much demand led uh big because you know their economy is growing and quite frankly they have quite uh, serious uh, Emission reductions targets, which means the gas and LNG has to offset uh, their use of, of use of coal and likewise across South Asia and Southeast Asia, if you look at their gas balances, they are all those countries are facing growing demand because the economy is developing, but they've got falling uh, domestic production. So in terms of LNG, it it is very much a, a growing market and a growing market where there's very little new supply coming on stream at the moment. And in the case of Australia, potentially falling supply.
0: Andy, one might look at the potential to dampen the oil soar of the last three months uh, surge that stopped that surge to 100 could be non-OPEC supply or even within OPEC plus those countries that are not confined by the agreement, i.e. Venezuela and Iran. Can we see either non-OPEC, the likes of Guyana or OPEC plus countries, non-confined uh, could they bring supply that could sort of dampen down this tightness?
1: Well, we're already starting to see that in terms of Iran and more Iranian barrels, according to the uh, um, global Commodity Insights survey, secondary survey of um, OPEC production, which we just published, you know, uh, Iran's output, you know, surging exports into the market have increased. Um, it's looking at, you know, new and innovative ways to do that, of course. Um, um, the uh, the swap deal that was announced with China uh, last month uh, in terms of uh, trading oil for in return for construction services, et cetera, to build an airport, you know, we could see more of that. And, and you know, these methods have been used previously as ways for countries like Iran and Venezuela to um, bypass sanctions. You know, it was something that was very much a feature of Iraq's oil trade during the uh, oil for food program days. So, Um, uh, Yes, I think that's uh, uh, fair to assume. Um, You know, the monthly oil market report that OPEC just put out, it actually lowered its call on uh, OPEC crude um, for the remainder of uh, 2023 uh, by about 70,000 barrels a day. So they're being quite kind of hawkish at the same time as they're saying, well, actually, um, you know, we're going to cut production um, for countries that are bound by uh, the quotas. I mean, what's clear here is that the main producers, Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia, are driving for a higher oil price, although they may not actually state that uh, publicly. I think it is interesting, however, the tension that it creates within the uh, uh, group that are bound by quotas. So, countries like the United Arab Emirates, for example, where um, uh, uh, producers like Adnok were investing heavily in boosting capacity up to and beyond, you know, 4.2 up to 5 million barrels a day, if you can't produce that oil, then that's a big sum cost that is just stuck in the ground.
0: Ed, the the big sort of question mark, of course, uh, as we get into these elevated levels and move towards the triple digits uh, is you know, $100 isn't what it used to be, right? I mean, you go out and try to buy a can of Coke or a latte and and, and everything is elevated. And as Jorge, uh, one of our speakers, said earlier in the week, you can't have elevated airplane ticket prices and banana prices and everything prices and and not have elevated oil prices. Does this level create a problem for the OECD in particular? I'm thinking, obviously, for the emerging markets, it's it's expensive, Uh, But where does it meet the sort of the rubber meet the road on this? We're not hearing the usual voices of complaint when prices get this high. India are silent. The U.S. at least in public are silent. No,
2: that's interesting. Yeah, that we haven't had the same kind of messaging around this fear of energy price inflation coming back into the market like we had uh, really over the last couple of years when you had this Somewhat awkward geopolitical pressure trying to be placed on the OPEC countries to increase production, and, and so far, you know, we didn't see any kind of commentary about energy price security at the G20, for instance, or that the, you would have you know reliability of supplies in in, uh, in the near term at least. I think it could be that there's a couple of other relief valves that have been happening in the market. You know, we look at if you look at Europe, for example, inventories going into the heating season are in a vastly different picture than they were last year. So you're not having the same kind of. Uh, volatility in electricity and heating and gas prices uh, in the EU, so maybe that's taking a little bit of the edge off of the sort of fear of energy price inflation. Um, And it could also just be that consumers have become more inured the fact that we are in a higher inflation environment and so are adjusting their spending accordingly, uh, or rather than their spending, adjusting their savings as well. As you've mentioned, things like airline tickets are very expensive. Um, Hospitality internationally is expensive. So if we're just getting accustomed to that, the cost of operating in this economy post-pandemic, then you can wear down on those savings. Hey, if you've been able to benefit from higher wages as well, You can withstand it a little bit better but so far it doesn't seem to be raising a political stink in many of the kind of uh, capitals where you think it would have been.
0: We have a senior uh, executive uh, from KPC in our weekly interview that's going to be published after this podcast who says You know, 90 90 to 95 is, 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 is everybody is comfortable with. It's not as elevated a price as it was before. And of course, a year ago, when we saw these prices previously, it was on the dawn of the U.S. midterm elections. And we're maybe a bit too far away from the U.S. presidential elections for this to be an issue at this time. But it could become so. Uh, where does that sort of feed through into the uh, the thinking, do you think, of the regional countries, Ed, just to follow up on that, from the point of view of the sort of critical relationship with the U.S., it's a lot of talk that it's not what it used to be, and so this may not be something that is a top priority on this cycle.
2: Yeah, I think we've seen resistance
0: from the core producers
2: in the GCC to responding to, say, U.S. political pressure that would help the domestic political situation in the US to increase production. Um, I think there's also been maybe a, an overemphasis that the GCC is moving away solidly into China's hands, for example, away from the US. I don't know that that's a, a, a solid trajectory, that that's gonna go only in one way. I mean, you saw on the outcome of the G20, this EU-US supported deal that would um, provide more infrastructural links between India, UAE, Saudi, Jordan, and Israel, I mean, that's, to me, an assessment that there's still a lot of soft power interest from the United States toward this region, and it's being reciprocated and, and certainly welcome. So I think the sort of trading relationships or the, the, the political relationships Perhaps they don't have the same kind of uh, emphasis that they may have had a couple of years ago, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily, you know, hostile or antagonistic in any kind of way. I think certainly from the United States point of view, um, Middle Eastern economies taking sort of more initiative to uh, cool down tensions within the region is certainly going to be a welcome development, and I think the regional governments are accepting that as well.
0: Mark the the I wanted to get your views just to do, to drill down a little bit on our earlier point Uh, regarding uh, the health of Japan and Korea. Of course, two of the biggest LNG markets in the world and in Asia, they pull a lot of the the Gulf LNG in that direction. But both of them are having difficult times, particularly Korea and other manufacturing centers in Asia, Vietnam. How is that translating into the LNG market? Uh, And I'd like your sort of midterm outlook as well for Qatar's increased capacity that's coming. Yeah.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Sean. Just going back to one of your earlier points about why has this not created more of a kind of political uh, big problem in in the West. And, And to me, if you look at the LNG side in the US in particular it's very interesting because 10 years ago the US didn't export any lng and literally in the first half of this year they've just become the world's largest lng exporter uh, surpassing 80 million tons surpassing both australia and qatar so of course with with these very you know high oil and gas prices uh, that that huge segment of the, uh, the US economy, which is the oil and gas business, actually uh, benefit quite a lot and also obviously geopolitically coming to the rescue of Europe uh, in their time of gas need. Meanwhile, of course, uh, domestic gas prices in the United States and also Canada, which by the way, is also going to become an, an LNG exporter for the first time next year, um, ha- have been you know, very moderated and very much uh, disconnected from, from these higher natural gas prices elsewhere. So maybe it's that disconnection that um that, that that means it's been less of a political uh, hot potato over there in terms of Asia, Sean, uh, you mentioned Vietnam, you mentioned Japan, you mentioned Korea. Japan was one of those countries where LNG demand did actually fall uh, quite quite dramatically in the first half of this year, predominantly because um, of, of, like you say, economic weakness. But you mentioned Vietnam, and you mentioned also another country similar in a way, in a similar situation as Philippines, and. Both of those countries uh, haven't been able to incentivize either their domestic production or any piped imports of gas from their neighbors. So they have been forced, despite the relatively high prices this year, to begin importing LNG uh, this year already. And that happened for both countries over the summer. So even if the economies aren't growing particularly fast, just given... The fact that they haven't been able to incentivize enough uh, upstream investment into their countries, they're they're still having to come to the market uh, to buy more LNG cargoes.
0: Let's go to this survey question and and, uh, look at some of the the sort of views on this question that we are discussing. Which of the following could stop Brent reaching $100 this year? More Fed rate hikes, uh, China slows further more non-opec supply uh, or for nothing can stop it uh, your thoughts on where that goes um andy i wanted to get your views also i mean we talked there the region, the sort of geopolitics of everything we're seeing the uh, the the continued but somewhat slow birth of a of a rapprochement with Iran obviously the Saudi Iran agreement earlier this year but now the U.S. seems to have come to some agreement on the hostage or the prisoner release hostage release whatever you want to call that in trade for six billion dollars uh, uh, moving back six billion dollars of Iranian money that was being held in Korea. Your thoughts on this development and the regional geopolitics in the region of the Gulf, uh, leading to uh, greater oil flows into the last quarter of the year?
1: Well, I mean the Gulf states. You know, I think over the last ten years, the big change for me. You know, if I if I think back to you know when I was based in the region, two thousand three to two thousand ten you know, it was very much, you kind of locked into the, you know, the kind of bipolar world of you align to um, the West, the US, implicit um, security guarantees, um, and that uh, the US government um, and uh, the Western partners would have a certain level of of influence when it came to uh, uh, dampening oil prices, um, influencing, uh, you know, big regional players in terms of Production policy and that translated through to OPEC. That has now all changed fundamentally. We live in this very complex multipolar world um, where the region and the regional power players like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. You know, they're wanting to uncapped, um, are wanting to build these strong relationships. You know, with with different partners, whether it's Russia, China. Um, um, it's not to say that they they're wanting to completely sever the umbilical cord with the United States. That they want to turn their backs on that. Implicit security guarantee, which the U.S. taxpayer is still willing to fund, um, but they are definitely building, you know, stronger bridges um, to the east, and that ties into the, the flow of products. You know, we just heard in terms of LNG flowing out of the, the Gulf into Asia. Um, um, that is, is you know, a fundamental trade flow which isn't going to reverse anytime soon. It's the same with with the region's crude. You know, Asia, China, India. You know, these are the major uh, consumers of um of 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 the region's products so that's not going to change but it's this multipolar world that 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 the region has become very good at navigating and but i guess nonetheless the-
0: andy on the point of momentum in the current yeah. year that we're in the the US has turned a blind eye to Iran's you know, uh, uh, sanction busting of oil exports, if you like. I mean, these are unilateral U.S. uh, sanctions to a great extent. But nonetheless, they've turned a blind eye. As a result, uh, Iran's production is above three million. So the, the positivity of momentum needs to be in place for these barrels to continue to flow. And I'm just wondering your outlook for that momentum, this deal on the prisoners and so forth.
1: Well, I'm, I mean, as a, a long-time oil watcher, I'd say, when, when haven't they actually turned a blind eye to some of these things? And, right. and, and, you know, I think you can go all the way back to 2005. I mean, it's well, you know, I think well-documented. They, they've kept the door open. And in turning, you know, in, in allowing some flexibility in the, the, um, um, how much crude you do see uh, uh, flowing onto the, the market from Iran, um, um, that they, they do kind of hold out the olive branch. Um, for approaching going forward, they keep diplomatic uh, ties, you know, behind the scenes um, um, going, so that you know they can eventually, at some point, open the door to uh, you know a negotiation and a and, and a settlement. That seems to be the trajectory is now that Gulf states are heading towards. You know, you have this remarkable, um, 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 you know, kind of meeting of the minds now with Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. Um, you know and Israel it would anyway. appear
0: is also on on the on the negotiations Ed Bell just to close out with some thoughts about how I how high an oil price the Gulf states need or want and and where that matches up with sort of fiscal balance sheets and so forth above 90 they're they're in surplus so they, they don't need to go much higher right 80s is everybody's happy so the argument some make that oh no they want to go to 100 is not necessarily the case fiscal balance sheets are happy in the 80s your thoughts Yeah, certainly the levels we're at right now
2: do imply surpluses or balanced budgets across basically every JCC economy, but hey, who doesn't want more money, right? So if you have these major kind of capital programs, particularly in Saudi Arabia, that need to be financed, you're talking potentially a trillion, of, a trillion US dollars that needs to be financed for a lot of the, the scale of the CapEx projects. Um, and that's a lot of money that needs to be generated. It's not only going to come through FDI, it's going to come through um, the tried and tested income generating uh, oil exports for Saudi Arabia. So oil prices above and beyond these kind of levels will certainly be welcome and go into replenishing um, reserves, help to expand that capital program in Saudi Arabia and help to I think really spend out more we'll see, we've seen in the UAE for instance a shift to more on the sort of soft skills investment or soft infrastructure investment going forward um so targeting skills development among the nationals in the country
0: Let's get the survey result and last word to Mark uh China slowdown is perhaps the 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 biggest uh, break potentially on the oil hitting 100 mark your thoughts on that and the outlook for china to to sort of get through this difficult emergence from covid the outlook for 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 obviously for lng as a as a gas consumption in china as a as a benchmark reference to economic health because it obviously drives power consumption etc and industrial development there your thoughts on china's recovery getting up some steam uh, without or with the surplus with a stimulus.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think certainly a lot of watchers expected, you know, as soon as the COVID restrictions were, were released at the beginning of this year, a, a big kind of return to activity in China. I, I think it's actually been more of a gradual uh, process, certainly throughout the first half of this year. Uh, but, but again, if you just look at the balances there in terms of the industrialization and economy that, you know, 1.6 billion people still growing at almost 6.5%. To me, they're, they're going to continue to need uh, more commodities, and in particular, uh, more, more clean, lower emission um, commodities. And, and to me, the Energy. obvious one for that is natural gas. And then the question is where they get it from. And again, that'll be a combination of more piped imports, predominantly coming from Russia, more domestic production uh, from the South China Sea, but also more LNG imports. And if you look at what they've done on there... Infrastructure side, they've started a couple of new LNG regas terminals only last month. And then there's this huge ramp up uh, to an almost doubling in regas capacity over the next few years. So they're fully prepared for it.
0: Yeah, I think you can expect uh, Chinese energy consumption to continue at a level uh, we're currently seeing, even regardless if the macroeconomic headlines are uh somewhat negative um given they have a, at least an oil a billion barrels in storage that they've purchased at relatively discounted rates cons- con- r- r- relative to the current price so I would maybe the upside we won't see in terms of more than 15, 16 million barrels a day of oil consumption, which would be a lot. But nonetheless, I think that economy can consume, as the world economy can probably consume, even in a weaker economic outlook, like we're seeing at the moment, full employment, but yet economic weakness. These two things are coexisting. It's confusing. Andrew Critchlow, thank you so much. What is confusing that you're still bionic on a bicycle and looking great. Ed Bell, thank you so much. Mark Housen in Singapore, really appreciate your time this morning. This is our interview that's about to be posted with Sheikh Khaled Ahmed El-Sabah from uh, Managing Director of International Marketing at KPC, Uh, a good insight into the oil markets as seen from uh, Kuwait. Thank you, guys. All the best.